want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. Tone, shoot light. Take a shot. Bouncer and I are a year, a mile and a half or so behind him, but we're actually a beaming. He's going 306 to stand by for VID. I'm sitting here now, I'm caging the Sidewinder Seeker to look down the radar line of sight. There's a little cage, cage on cage button there on the, the right throttle. 400 at the band, it's on your nose. From time compression, I felt like I could have looked over there and seen the serial number on the, on the missile. So I select Sparrow at that point, I took a 4.2 mile Sparrow shot. Big 21, kill. listening to when I released this podcast, my guest, Vice Admiral Mark Fox, then Lieutenant Commander Mark Fox, call sign Mert, was hammering away with an AIM-7 Sparrow and an AIM-9 Mike at a MiG-21. He was flying his F-18 in a strike package, an opening day of Desert Storm, when a bandit group of MiG-21s popped up off their nose. We spent a lot of time in today's episode talking about that MiG-21 shootdown, but he has a vast career talking from Libya to onboarding the Super Hornet being the Director of Military Operations at the White House, and much more. A lot going on, and I know you'll enjoy today's episode. This episode pairs with something that I'm very excited about, and that is the launch of E3 Aviation Association. I'm a co-founder, and I've been working on it for the last seven months, filming a lot of exclusive content, doing a lot of traveling, and there's some awesome things there in store. We're launching one March. More about that in a second. This episode ties directly to a segment we filmed at the National Naval Aviation Museum down in Pensacola. Thank you to the director, Captain Sterling Gillum, for inviting us down there and allow us to film some exclusive and behind-the-scenes stuff that no one else gets to see. One segment that lives up there is a full breakdown of Mert's F-18 that has been fully restored, minus some motors, sitting in the museum, as well as his wingman, or one of his wingmen, Nick Mongello, whose jet is currently being restored back there in the restoration hangar. Some really, really cool stuff. But E3 Aviation Association, you could click the link down below. You can see just some of the things that E3 Aviation is going to have to offer, as well as the community that's forming. And it's changing daily as we onboard new ambassadors that I'm really excited to build this community with. It includes everything from former Thunderbirds 
to Red Bull Air Race pilots and everyone in between that. So it's gonna be an awesome and exciting community to be a part of, and you don't wanna miss out. So click the link down below, go ahead and register. We won't spam you, but it's gonna allow you to notify when registration is open. As always, thank you to my Patreon supporters for allowing this podcast to keep going. Without you, this podcast would not be here. So thank you for doing that. And as a thank you, you get early access to episodes and some exclusive content. So thanks for doing that. Thank you to everyone who has supported the podcast by leaving a rating review on iTunes and now subscribing over on YouTube, liking videos, and leaving comments to help the podcast get seen by more people. So thank you for everyone who's done that. And with that being said, let's jump into the episode with Mert. Well, sir, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I'm, it's an honor to be able to talk to you. I'm excited just to hear your story. And then we got a few things to, to dig into. But before we do that, I always ask, can you give me the 60 to 90 second kind of elevator pitch of who you are and then, you know, the, the 90,000 foot view of your career to where you are today? Sure. Uh, I'm Mark Fox. I, uh, I was born and raised in West Texas, home of Dias Air Force Base uh, of, in Abilene. <laughs> uh, I always wanted to fly. For as long as I can remember, I wanted to fly airplanes. And whenever whenever I found out that there were airplanes that landed on ships, my dad had been in the Navy in World War II, not as an aviator. But as I became aware of the fact that airplanes landed on ships, that just really uh, charged my imagination. And I, I'm the little boy who grew up and got to do exactly what he really, really wanted to do, and that was fly airplanes off of ships. I'd never seen the ocean until I went to the Naval Academy. Um, so I, I, there was a call of the sea, call of aviation and the Naval Academy was just a means to an end. Uh, I knew I wanted to go there so I would be able to become a Naval aviator. And, um, so I graduated in 78, um, went to Pensacola and they got my wings in, uh, A4s down in Kingsville in March of 1980. Um, Went to A7s, East Coast, out of Cecil Field. Uh, It's closed now, but uh, in Jacksonville. And uh, had my first fleet tour flying uh, a single-engine, single-seat airplane. It was a good airplane to learn single-seat housekeeping because it was was a pretty sophisticated airplane for the day. It had a HUD and and an inertial navigation system. I went – when I finished that first uh, tour – I went to the A-7 RAG, or the training squadron, Fleet Readiness Squadron, and I was an instructor there for a few months, and then suddenly this opportunity to uh, transition to the Hornet popped up. They were only doing Hornet training out in the the West Coast in Lemoore, and so hustled out there, uh, transitioned to the Hornet in 84, uh, and then came back to the East Coast and made the first uh, Hornet deployment on the East Coast in 1985-86. the Libya cruise, as it turned out to be, made a bunch of intercepts of uh, some Libyan MIGs. Um, it was a pretty interesting cruise. Um, then uh, came finished my uh, finished my Hornet, uh, my second flying tour, fleet flying tour in the Hornet, and uh, I, I wound up going to the uh, the Bureau of Personnel to be the detailer, the assignment guy. I I didn't want to do the job. <laughs> I mean, it was just one of those. Yeah, shocking. Uh, yeah, but I, in my feeble-minded, uh, you know, logic, it was like, well, shoot, if I go to D.C. as a as a lieutenant or a lieutenant commander, I'll never have to go back. 
Um, my, <laughs> my logic was always just driven by what can I do, what jobs can I take that will ensure that I'll have opportunities to fly again. Um, <clears throat> so I was an assignment guy for a year, and then this admiral, uh, a three-star uh, who was in charge of East Coast Naval Aviation, a guy named Dick Dunleavy, a wonderful man. Um, he tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, I want you to come be my aide. So I was an aide for 13 months, and we flew around in a two-seat Hornet. He was an A6BN, and uh, I learned a lot from him. He was a two-anchor guy, had, um, you know, I'd never flown with anybody else, you know, so I used to, we'd kind of do this Mutt and Jeff thing. I'd always introduce him. He's the best NFO I've ever flown with. And he, you know, he's from Boston. He goes, Mark, I'm the only NFO <laughs> you've ever flown with. <clears throat> but uh, anyway, finished. In the, in the two anchor piece, for those listening, in my ignorance too, that's that's a Naval Flight Officer, which equivalent more or less to a WIZA weapon system officer. That, that's correct. Strike you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, he, a uh, wonderful man. I learned a lot about leadership and uh, I just really respect him. Um, and then came back to what we call our, my department head tour 04 to be, um, in uh, VFA 81. It was a squadron. I'd been in VFA 132 on the Coral Sea. That was a kind of a put together, had people, you know, Tomcats and Phantom guys experience a sevens. There was a, a quite a wide spectrum of experience in that squadron. VFA 81 was a, straight stick A7 squadron that just transitioned to the Hornet. Um, and then, of course, that was the Desert Shield, Desert Storm Cruise. Uh, we'll talk more about that, but that was an eventful uh, – it was a pretty it was a pretty intense time. My department head tour was about 13 months, and I think it was at sea for probably 10 of those. Jeez. And, uh, it yeah. was – so I, I, finished, uh, I finished my department head tour, and at this point it was, uh, hey, you need to do something that's professionally – uh, you know, rounding or whatever, you need to go join. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll go fly Eagles someplace or, or Vipers or, uh, and I said, no, no, you got to go purple joint, you know, like to a staff. So <laughs> I went to, uh, I went to Belgium to, uh, the Supreme headquarters, allied powers, Europe in, in, uh, Mons. Signed up, got there two years. That was, a. Uh, I hated it at first, and by the time I left, it was really I was fascinated. I, I'd never been on a big staff or anything before, but in the meantime, I had selected for command, and so I came back. and Interestingly, I came back to the same squadron as XO and then CO uh, in the Navy. You fleet up as the XO, as the executive officer, and then the CO. Uh, I went back to VF eighty one and and made a couple more deployments. Um, started flying Southern Watch in that time. Okay. Flew over the Balkans. Uh, in 94, finished my command tour and went to legislative affairs uh, in D.C. I was the number one priority in the Navy was uh, the Super Hornet and uh, and the George H.W. Bush aircraft carrier. And those were both in my portfolio. So that was a pretty neat time. What um, years were that? That was nine. I got to OLA in 96 and left in 98. OK. Um, <clears throat> then I was really fortunate. Um I was selected to command the first Super Hornet squadron. So as the Super Hornet was, I'd been working on that exclusively during my time in legislative affairs. And uh, anyway, I was selected to command the first squadron, go out there to Lemoore and stand it up. So I was, I don't know, on the number 42 or something of the first people, first Navy guys, uh, uniform guys to fly the, the Super Hornet. 
Yeah, very cool. And, uh, so it was an interesting thing. You know, we, there was no there was no organization. There was the fleet introduction team, a small kind of kernel of of people. But um, we VX nine is the organization that does operational test and evaluation. They needed they wanted to kind of create a squadron. They didn't have either the people or the airplanes. We VFA one twenty two, the Flying Eagles. We're bringing in people and airplanes, and so there was kind of a marriage between VX-9 and VFA-122. We were learning to fly the airplane and learning to maintain it, and then, so anyway, took it through operational test and evaluation. That was really fun. A lot of good flying there. Interesting. So you set up a the Super Hornet squadron, and you have people and you have jets, but then we call it the 422, our operational test squadron. Yeah, normally they would get the jets first and after, you know, after developmental tests and then they start working together to figure out how to use this thing and yep. how to develop the tactics. A lot was learned, I think, out of the Raptor for the Air Force when they stood up the F-35 and actually standing up a weapons school in the beginning with the F-35 to right. figure it out. And again, some things kind of paralleled one another. But so you got the operational squadron, got the jets and operational tests didn't so it was kind of well, a, a joint VX9 venture. Had airplanes, VX9 had airplanes and VFA-122 had airplanes and we took them, when we finished operational test, we flew our jets back to Lemoore and then uh, you know, gotcha. like, but it, it was essentially a set of workups as if you were going to go to sea. So we did a big air-to-air debt with Vipers down in uh, Key West. Uh, we did a red flag. Uh, we had an at-sea period on on uh, John C. Stennis, I think it was. Um, okay. So it was a, it was like a set of workups, really, of doing the things that you know I've done before in other airplanes, but this time I'm doing it in a new jet. And um, anyway, I finished that, and I, I was fortunate; I got selected to uh, to be an air wing commander. Uh, so I was deputy air wing commander, DCAG, uh, in Air Wing Two on uh, on Constellation. I took over uh, as CAG in August of 2001 in Hong Kong. So at that time, Connie's last deployment was scheduled in 2003, um, and my the end of my 18 month. At sea was going to be just this transit home because it looked like I'd just get the turnaround. Then, of course, 9-11 occurred, and what happened uh, was a much truncated and, and compressed turnaround cycle. And so we deployed um, again in, uh, I guess it was October of 2002 for ultimately what turned into the Iraqi Freedom uh, Air Campaign. And I was extended as Air Wing Commander to finish that the whole uh, the whole campaign piece. So I had my, had my change of command on... Connie in, I think it was mid-April 2003, I flew off the ship. The ship was going, <laughs> they were heading out. They were about to go home after the whole thing. And um, in fact, I flew straight to D.C. I interviewed for a job at the White House as the deputy of the White House military office and wound up getting that. Everybody's said, man, you've had some really political jobs of either assignments or legislative affairs or the White House. It's like I just showed up for interviews, man. It's, uh, it didn't do anything, other than, you know, just try not to pick my nose or, or blow it here in the interview. 
Uh, so I was the deputy at the White House military office. And then when I, uh, when I made flag, I was moved up and became the director of the White House military office as a one star. So it was not unlike being CAG. Uh, truth be told, it was, I had a bunch of different organizations, HMX One, Air Force One, uh, the communications agency, Camp David, the medical unit. It was, it was like being CAG with a bunch of different entities and organizations, and, and they're all focused on uh, supporting the president, you know, in whatever his mission is. So that was a lot of fun. It was uh, a lot of work. Sort of, sort of like uh, juggling crystal. As long as you don't drop anything, it's fine. You know, <laughs> right? Nothing, nothing like watching W bore a hole in your head when the secure comm drops with a discussion with Tony Blair one day in the Oval Office. There are a couple of memorable. One day, the H three just wouldn't start on the South Lawn. They had it shut down because he was going to make some remarks, and it just wouldn't start. And so Gotta they keep that thing running. <laughs> so they have a. A motorcade is a backup, but and then as soon as, soon as the motorcade pulled away, then they, they started the APU and it flew away. <laughs> it was anyway. There are things like that. <laughs> I I probably came closest to losing my job was when uh, you know Barney had no fear of cars or anything because he was a kind of a house dog, and he'd run around at Camp David and he damn near got run over one time. Oh geez. Uh, so that would have been disaster. that would have been really bad. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, I was then I got an unexpected uh, call from the assignment guy that does flag officer assignments. And he says, hey, you're the CNO's number one pick to go to Iraq. This is in 2006. Um, and to be the senior Navy guy, the CNO at the time, uh, Mike Mullen, was the he was really leaning hard into the Navy supporting the ground forces, the uh, Army and Marines. And so there were these individual augmentees that they would send. And I was the senior Navy guy in Iraq. And I thought it was kind of appropriate between Desert Storm and Iraqi Freedom. I've probably done more to blow things up in, in Iraq than most people. I thought, right. OK, all right, it's fair. I should go back there and try to help them stitch that place back together. Um, that was a hard year. Uh, the last three months of General Casey's tenure as the commander and the first nine months of, of Petraeus's. And that was, an, I didn't appreciate it, but I, I learned all of the, all of the army leadership and all, you know, I learned a lot and it was, uh, nothing that I'd ever professionally prepared, prepared for. But, uh, anyway, I came back from Iraq in, uh, late 2007 and, uh, then went to command of the, the Harriest Truman carrier strike group. Uh, so I got back in the Navy again and it was a little bit like Rip Van Winkle because last time I'd been in the fleet it had been back in 2003 and had the years at the White House. I could have stayed at the White House as long as I wanted to. I was really, but um, people think that when you're at the White House that all you do is go to social events and, and rub elbows with the president. It's, it's pretty hard work, um, but I knew I needed to get back to the Navy. Um, and so I was trying to figure out a way to to go back to the Navy without upsetting anybody that I was working for there at the White House. And then, of course, the the tap on the shoulder from the CNO said, hey, you're you're my pick to go to Iraq. And so I was like, well, OK, I was hoping to go to a strike group instead of uh, Iraq. But I finally I got the strike group. Um, I got to fly again. I was back in the cockpit, back in uh, flying both Super Hornets and Legacy Hornets. Um, after 
I don't know, a year, year, 13 months or so of the strike group to include, I joined them in while deployed in the Gulf. And so, uh, anyway, after that, I went to the Naval Strike and Air Warfare Center in SOC, um, out in Fallon, Nevada. I was, I was the, the two-star dad out there flying. Mm-hmm. And that was a great, great assignment. Uh, the high desert is magnificent. I, I've always loved. A quick, a quick question with that. Do you do anything with down at, with Nellis then? Is there any integration with your two-star <clears throat> counterpart down there? Yeah, we did. Uh, yeah, we did. We did a lot of, um, I, I, a lot of interaction with our Air Force uh, brothers down there in Nellis. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine and, being right, next, right next door in the airspace. Yeah. The airspace, you know. This, especially when you think of how, you know, the future of live virtual and the space and the weapons envelopes and the things that we're, we're talking about now, um, you know, essentially Fallon and, and Nellis ranges are, they're not that close to each other, but at the same time, you know, it's, there's synergy there. And it was a good thing right. to, to have an opportunity to, to interact with my Air Force brothers. And I, I've got to know a lot of good Air Force guys as well uh, during that time. And then uh, after after the Fallon, I, I got picked up a third star and went to Bahrain to be the Fifth Fleet Commander. And so I was, that was from 2010 to 12. Um, I was in Bahrain for the unrest, you know, the the Arab Spring. That was a that was an interesting time. Came back from there in 2012 to to the Navy staff as the Navy's in three and five. I finished out my tour. My my military career there is the deputy down at CENTCOM. I went down to CENTCOM as the, the DCOM uh, in 2013, and I retired uh, after 38 years of commission service in 2016. So I my last front seat hop was when I was at Fallon in April or May of 2010. So from 1978 to 2010, it was a, it was a good run. And uh, that's, that's a pr- that's a pretty solid run, yeah. I would say. And then uh, a few jets, you know, to put the notches in the belt. That's fairly impressive. I want to jump back. There's a lot to cover here between from Libya to your time in Iraq at the White House. And then even your last tour we were talking about beforehand, you and I had overlapped. Obviously, we were separated by many layers there, but the Operation Inherent Resolve. So, you know, kind of rounding out your career there. But I want to jump back to Dias. And now it makes sense why you went into the Navy, because if anyone's been to Dias and you've never seen the sea, it's got to be better than Dias, right? Well, you know, actually, they flew big clunky airplanes at Dias. Right. You know, they had B-52s and C-130s uh, C-130s and KC-135s, which, don't get me wrong. I've, I've the Air Force has probably three or four hundred had three or four hundred KC one thirty fives, and over my career, I think I've probably plugged almost every one of them. Yeah, I've gotten a lot <laughs> of gas from Air Force tankers, uh, so I will never say a bad word about an Air Force tanker. That said, they didn't fly; they were not flying airplanes that you could do a loop or fly inverted in. Yeah, fair enough. And it does seem, I mean, at least. Now that I know, I don't think I still want to land on a boat, but as a kid, I'm like, that looks pretty cool. Now we're like, mm, I, don't, I don't know if I want to go land on a boat and try to catch a little string that's across the deck, pitching, you know, at night, zero, zero, whatever it might be. That sounds terrifying. Well, it's, it's, uh, in the daytime, it becomes good, clean fun. Although it's, it's part of the job that 
um, you get an, a little bit of an adrenaline rush every single time you take a cat stroke or you get, I mean, you're on your game. And in the daytime, yeah. it's it's become good, clean fun. At night, it, it still works. Um, I've got, I don't know, 13, almost 1350 traps um, and probably, I don't know, four, at least a third of them are at night, maybe pushing above that. So it's a, it was a great ride. Well, you know, we connected, I was down in Pensacola, Kevin Sterling Gillum. I think he has 1,307 arrested landings. We, we talked several times about that. So I want to get that out there for Sterls, but they were kind enough to host us. We actually got a tour of the museum with E3 Aviation Association. And one of this was the, the Hornet that you flew in Desert Storm, which we're going to talk about a little later on, fully restored to its glory, although it's missing some engines and some other key, key components to get it off the ground, but restored it as if the night, the night you were flying there. And it was uh, very interesting to kind of see all that kind of come together and then learn a little bit more about naval aviation and then just hear some of the stories. Because, again, it sounds absolutely terrifying uh, to me to go land out there on a, on a big old boat. Doing a cat shot would be kind of fun, I think. I, I would look forward to doing uh, that. At the end of the cat stroke, you have a one or a zero decision. Is the airplane flying <laughs> or not? And you've got to – so the cat stroke, you have no control over that. The landing, you're in control of. You're working, you know, uh, and the the ship is moving, but the angle is kind of moving to the a little bit to the right. So you've always got a little bit of a – a lineup thing in your scan, as well as the the glide slope and your angle of attack, you learn how to do it, and it's it's uh it's work, it's good work, uh, and it's uh so the cat stroke, you're just along for the ride, and then you've got a decision of if I got a problem, do I need to jettison the tanks? Do I need to jump out? I mean, all of the or the airplane's flying. Uh, it's and it all's like that. It's pretty quick. Yeah. You either know yeah, what, what it's going to be. I want to talk because um, I think it'd be interesting to hear the time frame, your transition to the Hornet, because in that period, I mean, the, the Hornet was still being rolled out into the fleet. So you relatively early on into it. Can you talk to me about that transition and what that time frame was for the Hornet? Yeah. Uh, let me back up just a bit because it was a prototype, the YF-17 that was on the air show circuit back in the late 70s. And when I was the summer of 78, after I graduated, I'm down in Pensacola waiting to start training. And they had an air show. And this guy put on the most eye-watering display of airmanship I'd ever seen. I mean, it was just amazing. It's like I lusted in my heart after that airplane. It was like, Lord, whatever it takes to fly that, that that's what I want to do. And in those days, it was going to be a replacement for both the F-4 and the A-7. And so um, as it turns out, the vast majority of the, the Phantom Squadron transitioned into the Tomcat. A couple of them did not from VFA or VA, I'm sorry, VF 151 and 161. They were midway uh, squadrons that transitioned into the Hornet, but almost all the other Phantom Squadrons transitioned into the Tomcat. But at the time, I didn't know that. And so when I, it was time for me to come to put my dream sheet together, I put A7s East, A7s West, F4s East, F4s West. F-14s east, F-14s west. And I know that the people in the in the assignment world said this kid doesn't know what he wants because it's kind of all over the map between fighter and, and light attack. But I really wanted to be in line to to get into the Hornet. 
the story of how I went Hornets was another. I did my. I had my last night trap on Lexington in the A seven. You you go to the boat in uh, in this case in the you know in the training command in the T two. That was got four traps there, and then you get six traps in the A four daytime. So the first time you go to the boat at night is in your fleet airplane, and so we had a we had a, a training carrier, the Lexington, that was dedicated to nothing but carrier qualifications, and they were good. But the Lexington was a World War II. She was a big ship for World War II. She was a small ship by today's standards, and I didn't appreciate it because it was what it was. Um, anyway, so I went to the to the Lexington in A sevens and. Carrier qualls on Lexington was a physical affair. I mean, I came back with bruises on my shoulders and knees. I mean, it's a it's an eyeballs in cat shot, and it's a violent trap. <laughs> so I got my last night trap uh, on Lexington on October thirty first of nineteen eighty, a Friday night. We went in town. We were booming, having fun, and then the next day flew the jets back to Cecil, and on Monday. I go to work. They won't. They don't tell you where you're going until you've gone to the boat. And so, if you do well at the boat, then you'll go to a squadron. That's, in fact, as a matter of, fact, I did well at the boat. And the next thing you know, that Wednesday, I'm leaving to go to the Med to join uh, a squadron that's been deployed on the Kennedy. And so, my first, um, you know, my first experience in the fleet. Boom! I'm I'm deployed. <laughs> And, right. and and there was very little, you know, um, my wife, Priscilla, we had a little boy, William. There was no time to just mope or anything. It was like, okay, I'm leaving. Uh, today's Monday and I'm leaving on Wednesday or Thursday. Boom. Uh, so, wow. uh, but the, so I went to this squadron, VA-72, and the guy who was leaving, who I was literally taking his rack in his space, was a guy named Jim Weatherby. And Weatherby had been selected to go to test pilot school and at Pax River. So he was a, he was a sage old Lieutenant. Uh, I was a fresh caught JG. And so Weatherby, I overlapped with him just for a brief, brief time. Cause he's now leaving and I'm taking his place in the junk room. Um, now fast forward, flash forward now to 1983, no 84. Yeah, early 84. And I'm an instructor now in the A7. So I've had a full tour at sea. I've made three deployments. I've got 1,200 hours in the jet, uh, a little over 300 traps or something. And I read one day in the paper that this guy, Jim Weatherby, has been selected by NASA to be an astronaut. And it's like, isn't that cool? Old Weatherby. Yeah, good, good, good on him. He was out in Lemoore in this new stand up squadron, VFA 132. As a test pilot, one of the guys who test flown the airplane, he's out in Lemoore, and he's going to be now. He's leaving to go to NASA, and there's a hole in this squadron. And long story that I won't bore you with. I'm the guy who shakes out of the the rag out of the bag here on the East Coast to go. Okay, go fill that hole. And once again, it was <laughs> like, oh gosh, I'm gonna I'm gonna have a chance to go fly the Hornet. And okay, you're leaving next week. So, okay, let's go. Let's pack up the kids and, and get in the car. So that's how I wound up going out. And so I go to Lemoore, transition, and then the squadron now comes back and executes a change of home port, comes back to the East Coast, and then we deploy on the Coral Sea. 
That's <laughs> fast. It's moving fast. So it's I've in, to hear that intera- in- I've interacted with Weatherby a number of times since then. It's like I just followed you around. I I didn't. I wanted to go to Pax River. Uh, I made the upper half of my class possible at the Naval Academy, uh, <laughs> and so I didn't go. I didn't go to Pax River, but um, I replaced him again in another squadron when he was tapped and he flew the I think he's he flew the shuttle at least, you know, three or four times, maybe five. I don't know. He's he's in the Kennedy Space Center Hall of Fame and he's a great guy. That's pretty yeah, pretty impressive. Well that's good to have someone lead the lead the charge there, you know, and knock down the the roadblock. But that's that's an impressive path. And so you transitioned the Hornet, but on that deployment you guys are right out I mean right out the gate and then dealing with Libya. Well everybody Everybody wanted to, we're in a brand new jet and yeah, it still smells new. Oh, and we're on an old ship, Coral Sea. <laughs> my my <laughs> father-in-law, Priscilla's dad, was CAG on Coral Sea in the early 50s. And he got a great charge out of this. He just laughed. He goes, ah, oh, Mark, I was on her when she had a straight deck. Um, <laughs> so it put new life into that ship, though, because the, the Hornet is a sortie generating uh, you know, it works and it's easy to maintain and all that. So, but everybody wanted to bump heads with us, everybody. And it was, it was the life. I mean, we, we fought, you know, British Phantoms out of Cyprus, uh, F-104, Italian F-104s, they're fast as crazy. Uh, these British Harrier guys, um, it, we just, everybody wanted to fight us and we wanted to fight them. Um, and so Did you the, fight an F-104? Because I'm curious, the just the stark difference between a Hornet and an F-104 well, has to be He, he just fast. cruises naturally, easily at point nine. <laughs> you know? Right, yeah. He, he doesn't take, he doesn't turn. It takes half the Mediterranean for him to turn. <laughs> uh, so we could, we could, but he's fast. He is very fast. Uh, so just yeah. a whole variety of different things. We, we were, uh, one of my, a J.O. Wingman and I, we went out and, we just spanked these hard wing phantoms, these British. And it was the airplane. It wasn't, I mean, we're well-trained, but you know, the airplane just, just, it works. So we finally knock it all off and said, okay, thanks for the training. You know, we, we enjoyed the hop or something. And this, this Brit goes, well, I should bloody well think you did enjoy that. <laughs> um, but then the, the Libya, there were some terrorist attacks sponsored by Libya in the latter part of 85. And then so suddenly in January of 86, um, we're flying and we're doing this uh, freedom of navigation. And then the line of death, Gaddafi had had this, you can't cross this line of death. We'll, you know, and so we're going down and, and, and flying. And um, so in January and February and March of 1986, we're, we're doing these ops, freedom of navigation ops off of Libya. And the Libyans were sending out, and they had MiG-25s and MiG-23s. Um, MiG-25 has got huge cans. I mean, it's it's a big, big airplane. The first intercept that I made on, was on a, a MiG-23. And, you know, these guys had a nominal forward quarter capability. So we had to honor that. And we weren't just going to let them uh, pop us in the face. So pre-notch or pre-the tactics of notching and do it. We were doing the same things in a sevens, actually, back when I was, you know, at 20 miles, the pulse Doppler on the Tomcat radar, go into the beam, put out a bunch of chaff, descend, 
you know, we we were, the, I considered them warning area tactics at the time because you could make the Tomcat guys lose lose you by doing this. But we're doing similar kinds of things on the fly, going, okay, we got to defeat their forward quarter capability. So very dynamic, low to high uh, stern conversions uh, kind of intercepts. So this MiG-23 is flying along, and he's just – he's got his wings out forward, and he's flying along. And so come up, came up a little closer. My wingman's back aft just to make sure that if there's anything – and finally, I get, in, I get into parade with him. I mean, I'm – you know, and this guy – out of his periphery. See, he jumps. I wasn't aware of the fact that I was there, you know, and it was like, uh, these guys are not that good. Um, I, I was going to ask, I was like, if they were showing any awareness, but that question right there, that, that, uh, statement answers that question. Yeah. The, um, anyway, so January and February, we do a bunch of intercepts on Libyan airplanes. Things are heating up. And so the next time in March, uh, they didn't send. They didn't send the air. They didn't send their fighters out. They'd send a um, a candid, kind of a C one forty one looking big airplane to come out and take a look at the you know where we were, what we were doing. Um, but then there was one day. This was in March. You know, I've been to. I lived in Florida for many years out of Cecil Field, and so I've seen shuttle launches and satellite launches and things like that. It was not an uncommon thing. And the things are heating up and flying along. And I see this it looks like a satellite launch out of, out of Cape Canaveral. And coming back to the ship. Oh, oh what other satellite? Well, it's an SA five. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was low and far away. It, I, there was right. no threat to me, but it was like, Holy shit, that's an SA five. I mean, I got back to the ship and I real that was when I realized uh, this is real. What that was, yeah. <laughs> um, so, anyway, that was a good cruise. It was really fun. Just knife in our teeth. Our skipper, a guy named uh, John Nathman, calls on Black. He had been a JO in Phantoms. He had had his department head tour in Tomcats, and now he's the skipper of a Hornet squadron. So he he was a Top Gun bro. Uh, he was in the forty four seventy seventh. So. He had he had incredible experience. He had had you know he, he closed the door. I guess we can talk about this now, right? There's books. There are books about it. Yeah. Anyway, so Black goes, "Hey, I've flown these jets, and they're shit. <laughs> you can't." <stay> out of <laughs> and so Black's guidance was, "If you're ever, yeah, our tactics are conservative by design. You know, you come to a merge, you take your shot, you blow through. Don't." Don't drop. If you drop anchor, you're against a professional adversary. You're going to get nailed by somebody if you turn at the merge. Take your shot, blow through. Black goes. All right. If you have, if you're directed to shoot down these guys, he said, don't let any of them go back. Everything you've learned, these guys are not good. Don't give them a learning curve. Zero. Shoot them all down and do whatever it takes to do that. So uh, the fangs in our, <laughs> our map, uh, the fangs are out. Fangs are through the floor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, uh, I've obviously never flown one, but going to like the, uh, the petting zoo out of Nellis, you know, which you can go walk through sitting in the, the some of the cockpits, like the ergonomics of it. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine just visibility alone that. Yeah. 
I mean, thick screens and yeah, yeah, very user unfriendly. Um, yeah, it'd be a it'd be a challenge, but it still can reach out and bite you. Yeah, absolutely. So paying it respect. That's that's interesting time. I mentioned on another podcast because I'm right by Dobbins here. I think they're still there. The Libyan C-130s that Gaddafi had purchased huh? right before the embargo, and then which is surprising because now this has happened. Maybe we've the contracts have been re- rewritten or the federal codes changed because same with Turkey. I saw Turkey's first two F-35s on the line, which obviously those those didn't get scrapped. They've been repurposed. Right. Uh, but these C-130s are sitting out there with trees growing through them wow. uh, because the Libyans had, had purchased them, et cetera. So it's it's interesting to see the dynamics. But you spent, obviously, a lot of your career over there, and that was really just the beginning. And also an interesting piece, I think, you know, you're, I would imagine, the first part of your career, you're focused on the Soviet Union and the big war that's going to come but as we kind of march into now the beginning of your hornet career approaching uh 1990 1991 the world is changing and the dynamics are changing what was there anything kind of different you guys were doing or was it desert storm when that finally kicked off realizing that maybe everything had been geared towards getting ready to fight the soviets yeah, that, now, exactly, now the model's changing you're exactly right i mean it, so the first um well, until Desert Storm, really, our focus, my professional focus had been, we're going to have a dust up with the Soviet Union. It's it's a Cold War mindset. And they used proxies like Cuba or, you know, in Grenada or Libya, you know, they were, so they would do proxy things, but it was the Soviets and us. And that's what we trained to in terms of defending the carrier, the outer air battle, uh, war at sea all of that stuff. And then Desert Storm happens and Qaddafi, or, uh, Saddam had the <laughs> incredible timing to do what he did in terms of invading uh, Kuwait at exactly the same time that we were at the peak of our strength from the Cold War. And the Soviet Union was imploding. We didn't know it at the time, but the wall, you know, all of that stuff between 89 and, and 91 at the same time, so we took, you know, they took all of this stuff out of Europe to put into the desert. So, and we, and we were, you know, you got to respect your, your opponent. You can't ever say, well, we'll just, you know, we're so much better than they are. You always have to presume that, you know, kind of back to the point you made about you're flying some pretty primitive stuff, but you got to respect it. You cannot just go, well, because I'm an American, I have a birthright of, of combat excellence. No, you, you so we were going into the the desert shield portion of this and there were all these predictions about hey he's got a he's got gen you know fourth gen fighters and he's got a very sophisticated integrated air defense and this is a hard problem and you know they're they're battle hardened from the Iran Iraq war um so we were sober minded about it it wasn't like we're just going to go in there and have a cakewalk uh but then we kicked his ass i mean it was yeah. um so I think the only way you can approach this is to always, always, always give them credit for whatever they're capable of doing and prepare accordingly. I was much, obviously much younger in that time frame, but I do remember, you know, new the, the news or, you know, yeah, different outlets were talking about, I mean, Saddam, what, did he have like the fifth largest army in the world or third largest? Sure. I mean, it was yeah. a massive army. He had a big army, a big air force. 
Um, integrated air defense, it was a kludge together, but I mean, it was Soviet stuff, SA-2s, SA-3s, SA-6s, a lot of uh, French stuff, Roland and Crotel. Um, they, they, he had a lot of kit, a lot of stuff. Because, um, I mean, the, what was your expectation? What was the general thought going into it? Because I'm looking at a perspective of really what everyone has been used to the last 20 years of uncontested wars in relatively uncontested environments. Not that it lulls you to sleep, but you kind of, you, we now kind of expect up. Yeah. Air supremacy is we own the sky and we don't have to worry about people getting shot down, et cetera. But that was not the case leading into Desert Storm. No, not at all. I, we felt like we were good and our tactics were sound and we had trained, we trained well. We were, I mean, we had back in the 80s, we had many V minis, uh, big, <laughs> crazy, over the water. I mean, dozens of airplanes in the same airspace. Um, and, it was it was challenging to keep tabs of all the stuff that's going on and not to hit somebody. Um, but that's also real. That's real life as well, you know. Um, yep. So as we're when Saddam invaded Kuwait you know, on August second of nineteen ninety, um, we on Saratoga and VFA eighty one had gone through a f- complete set of workups. And so we were scheduled to deploy on a routinely scheduled deployment on August 6th, just a few days after Saddam's invasion. We had thought we were going to do a med cruise. Um, and then suddenly all of that changed. And none of us had any deep experience <laughs> in the desert at all. Nobody did. Uh, at least no Navy guys did. We were kind of the kings of the drive-by shootings, you know, to do the Libya, <laughs> to do the Lebanon. I mean, just the Grenada, you know. Those were kind of what we did, um, right. but this was a different story. Now suddenly we're going, and when we first get over there, we're in a pretty defensive mindset because they weren't have any assets over there. I mean, I know that there were a bunch of eagles and some guys, you know, flying over there with the ordnance on the jets, and that was it. Um, and then Saddam didn't push into into Saudi, um, so relatively quickly we we shift our mindset from defensive and and reactive to okay we're going to drive the problem and create an, uh, a campaign in a in a plan and none of us had ever really worked i mean certainly probably not since vietnam of having all of these different pieces and parts of air force navy marines or you know all of this stuff trying to work together um and you know the air tasking order was I didn't know what it was when I first started. And in those days, they printed it out, and it was like a New York phone book. Both, both a, a phone book is, an, a, is a, an anachronism now as well. Some people may not even know what it is. Yeah, like, what's that? Yeah, but how do you know where to get your gas? Well, you got to go through this labyrinth of papers to get to the – and the way that we transmitted information was kind of crazy. Our comms didn't mesh very well with the KOC, didn't mesh at all. And so they literally, we'd fly an S3 into Riyadh, they'd get the discs, and they'd fly back to the ship. And then Kennedy and Saratoga were the Red Sea carriers. And then they'd take a helicopter and take Kennedy's disc, the ATO. That's how the ATO was distributed. I mean, it's, it's archaic now, but that was the way it was. 
But you know, an, in- an interesting aspect, I've talked about this for those listening on other episodes, the bro chat specifically, we're talking innovation pieces. So we'll jump forward real quick and then jump back to this because now, all right, my last deployment, OIR, you're the deputy at CENTCOM, correct? Right. We're, we're still doing the ATO. Essentially, it, while it has molded and adjusted somewhat, like it's still based on the same system and it's still distributed while it is digital. If you had to go read that, it's not only an eye chart, but you really have to know what you're doing. It's not easy to do. And so on this discussion we had, um, first, I'm in Afghanistan in 2012. There's an Excel document that takes that product, the ATO, gonculates it, and then spits out mission data cards into things that pilots can read. Your tanker track, your fuel, your vol times, the things that you need from that document that are not easy to get from. So fast forward now to OIR. And we replace the 13th Fighter Squadron who had been doing training before ISIS at 4OR kicked off. So middle of their deployment, they are switching gears. You know, they're running full speed trying to do this. So they are every night and every day mission planning cell going through that document and pulling that information and transposing it manually. And it's taking hours. And also you could have errors in the transposition, et cetera. And so I end up, I remember this document. I reach out to a Viper buddy who's in the guard. He sends it to us. And it turns out as one of the guys in our squadron who in 2006, 2007 had ridden this as a young lieutenant when he was in the Viper unit before he went to MQ-9s yeah. and then came back. So it's still, it's kind of funny that yeah. to hear it, like that was really challenging in 2014, 2015. It's probably still challenging today, but I can't imagine just for those listening, you have to envision, you know, the things, the information you need to go do your mission has to be flown out to the carrier and then helicoptered over to the other carrier. And then you're reading this document that might as well, I mean, it's close, might as well be Chinese because there's, it's just <laughs> ones and zeros. It's a, it's a, it's a big challenge well, just to do your job. For Navy guys. I mean, we were, you know, we were fish on bicycles for a while. I mean, it was like, what is, you know, how, how does this work? Well, if you want to get gas, you got to figure out where that tanker is going to be. It's like, ah, okay, I can do that. Um, yeah. But you know, the ATO, it, we didn't have anything better. We, the Navy didn't have anything better in terms of, uh, you know, the, the big flaw in my opinion of the ATO process, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, there's, there is uh, the answer in the air force's mind is it's, Every problem has a technical or a procedural solution, you know, and this only works <laughs> as long as you own the initiative and you drive the problem because you unless you're prescient and, you know, and if, if you're ever now dealing with something that they're doing to you, um, it's different. It's a different story. And just because you've got a tanker track and blah, 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 if, if your tanker's blowing up or if you've got, you know, the ability, and, and I don't mean to be overly critical because that was the environment that we lived in, but it doesn't handle flex or it, it do, it's not real adaptable. It's a very goncolator grinding it out, and it's a procedure that's been polished to a fairly well, but it presumes that you drive the problem and that you've got the initiative and that the enemy's not capable of disrupting that. And uh, that's something that. You know, I always was trying to, okay, what would we do if, and how are we going to, how are we going to handle this if we don't have comms or if we can't, um, but that said, 
Cipernet and the connectivity that grew from Desert Storm into Iraqi freedom, suddenly as CAG and as the mission commander and overall strike lead for the opening strike of Iraqi freedom, I, I couldn't do what I was doing to coordinate that without Cipernet and without secure comms to go, you know, okay, the F-117s want to be lower than I thought they would want to be. And, the, you know, these guys and just deconflicting and making sure you don't have somebody take a bomb through their wing from, you know, right. from high altitude or whatever. So it's uh, we've come a long way, but there's still it's a varsity problem, uh, especially if your enemy is is able to disrupt or take, you know, take things that take your comms away. That's that's a really good point. And I think hammer home one, you know, the enemy always gets a vote and that cycle is predicated on the fact that you're driving the fight. The minute the enemy votes and disrupts a key component of that, if it takes out the tanker, if it yeah. knocks out communication, GPS jamming, et cetera, we can go on and on. The problem becomes very complex. Yeah. It's already a complex problem. As you mentioned, it's a varsity, it's a varsity level problem to go out there and figure out how to do this. If you own own the sky and you're not worried about it when you're worried about things blowing up on your side, et cetera, then uh, anyway, that it's a sidebar yeah. on it, but it's been something that I've always been kind of uncomfortable with because we are so, for example, for me to drop a JDAM, I've got to have a, a zero one good. I've got to have a GPS signal. And so if I don't have that, how do I deliver my ordinance? You know, and, and I'm sure that, We've been chewing on this for a while, and I'm sure that we've come up with new or better ways to to deal with that. But, um, you know, you can't – when I stood up VFA-122, you got a finite amount of training time in a, in a syllabus, and you don't want to – and so we eliminated manual dive bombing, uh, you know, because it's like, well, you did that in the training command, but you're not going to do circle the wagons um, – manual dive bombing and i was getting all of these you know pushback from old guys going hey what if what if what if what if and i said hey if you don't have a system you're not taking the jet across the beach you know i you don't <laughs> this isn't vietnam you're not going to just sling sling bombs wherever they go and and so um the the standard you know you take you you got a full up jet you don't take anything that's compromised across the beach period dot and that's a that's a an imperative. That's a that's a really important thing. You know, it's like, oh yeah, okay. Well, I don't. My radar's not working here. I'll I'll, I'll just take my best guess. You know, that's, <laughs> right. that's not how that's not how it is today, at least. Yeah, the calculus has changed. Well, I would like to to jump into January of 1991. I know you guys are working up. The the world is watching Saddam. Has watched Saddam invade Kuwait. There's lots of buildup. There's lots of talk going. W what's going on with uh, you, your squadron, as it's leading up to January of '91? Yeah. So, um, as I said, we shifted from a defensive mindset now to the air campaign and the opening. There were four big guerrilla strikes that were put together in sequence, um, with the first strike at night or those zero three hundred uh TOT time on target and then a daytime strike and then another nighttime strike and then another daytime so night day night day I was maintenance officer of the squadron at the time and so I could 
couldn't get on. I would have put myself onto the daytime or the first night strike because that's the first strike. But I wind up being the harm element coordinator for the second night strike. That's my go mission. And so, but then I'm a spare for the first daytime strike. So, and it's like, well, I hope it's just not a one strike war, you know? And then we put these, you know, we fly these quote mirror images. Uh, you take off and you have the exact, you know, you fly with the configuration. We are flying with inert bombs and then dropping them. Um, so you'd have the time, distance, drag, tanking. And so you'd go out and fly a, you know, four or five hour mission over Saudi Arabia. It was a mirror of what you would be doing into Iraq. And uh, so that was that was really invaluable because it just gave us all of the all of the uh, muscle memory now to figure out how to read the ATO, how to get to the right tanker. Um, and so we were doing these mirror images starting probably in September, October timeframe, and then all the way up into uh, December, <clears throat> there was a UN deadline for uh, Iraq to leave Kuwait on the 15th of January, I think. So that's the kind of the big deadline. And then of course they didn't. Um, and so we get the, we get the go. Okay. So our first night strike um, was all high altitude tactics. Uh, the Hornets were shooting harm against targets in the, in the Baghdad area. And we lost an airplane and a pilot that night. Scott Spiker was the first casualty of desert storm. He was in my squadron. Um, he's no four sharp guy on his game, a delightful dad and a, a just a wonderful friend. Um, <clears throat> so at that time I was, I was not, um, in fact, I helped Spike. Spike had been just before we left, um, the States as all of this brouhaha is occurring. There is a brand new weapon that hasn't even been through operational test. It's called the, the SLAM ER, the Standoff Land Attack Missile Extended Range. And it's a, um, a weapon that can be launched from a Hornet, and then actually it flies its route, and then you can guide it at the end game. And it hadn't been tested yet, but we sent Spike to, to St. Louis to get the SLAM ER. So he was the SME, the subject matter expert for SLAM ER. And so SLAM ER was in our inventory. And if, 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 and if, uh, there were all these contingencies where Spike might be the man to, to do this SLAM ER mission. It kind of speaks a little bit about the professional stature of the guy. Right. You, you got your act together. Go to St. Louis get checked out on the slam ER and you're the man. And there was another guy from VFA 83 that did the same thing. So he was kind of in a unique place as we're putting all of these strike plans together, uh, these big guerrilla strikes. So I put him as a spare on the opening strike because a spare on a big strike is a varsity is a varsity thing. You've got to be able to fill into any one of a half a dozen different places and it's not right. it's not for the faint of heart. So I put him there. Um or he was put there, I guess. 
in December, I became operations officer. So I finished my maintenance officer tour and I swapped jobs. And uh, But the who's flying and which strike has already been set. And so as we're getting closer to January 15th, Spike comes to me and goes, hey, Mert, uh, I, I've trained all my life to do this. And now I'm being penalized because I'm the slam ER dude. Let me put me on the go bird, you know, put me on the go sheet. And I said, I, I know exactly how you feel. I agree. I went to the skipper and said, hey, let's spike. Spike ought to be flying on this first. He's like, yeah, let's do it. So I've had some conscience pangs <laughs> since then. Of I helped him jump into that first strike. But uh, so he was a harm shooter. So it turns out I'm, I'm pretty sure he was shot down by a, um, a MiG-25. Um, it was there was a lot of uh, ambiguity and a lot of uncertainty, um, but anyway, he didn't come back. I don't know any of the details as we start our brief now on the for the daytime strike, and I'm a spare, so I'm just just listening. We lost a bird last night and a pilot, kind of sober minded, um, and so we're going this. This first daytime strike was going against this uh, a target, an airport, uh, an airfield H3 in western Iraq. And the campaign plan was, okay, eliminate their command and control, kill their airplanes, kill their logistics for airplanes, you know, eliminate, the, you know, suppress the, their, you know, the, the air defenses, and it basically create a, create a sanctuary that you can just do anything you want. But the early part of the campaign is kill their command and control, eliminate the, the IADs, and, and kill their fighters on the ground or in the air. And so um, we're going after H3. POL, uh, petroleum, oil, lubricants, uh, you know, those kinds of targets, maintenance places. And so this first strike, there were six SA6s at, at H3. There were SA2s, SA3s. There was Roland. There were Crotel. It was a very heavily defended um, target with a very uh, a varsity missile engagement zone. So the way you peel that back, okay, we had two axes jamming from the A6Bs. We had one axis here of when we're going to do the ingress, and we've got another axis here of when we do the egress. So you're always going to be in a main beam of jamming. We had one. This was led by uh, Dizzy Gillespie. He was the the skipper of VF-83, those guys were going up here to launch walleyes, which is a long range, you know, it's a 15 or 20 mile stick TV glide bomb. And you can also fly it. I mean, you can look with a data, data link. Um, pretty varsity thing to do on the first day of the war. I, I'll put it that way to be heads down, trying to fly your walleye and doing all that. Um, there were, Tactical air launch decoys, talled to saturate. So these guys are coming in, launching and turning out, and these things are are coming in. So the whole idea, and then finally, we've got Hornets and A7s from Kennedy that are shooting harm, AGM-88s, high-speed anti-radiation missiles. And the whole idea of that is, you know, the harm comes over, it's programmed, it opens its little electronic eye, and looks for SA2s or SA3s or SA6, and it'll rotate through this thing as it's in its in its trajectory. And if it sees something, it'll home in on it. So that was 
for the people who are going into the, the strikers themselves that are dropping Mark 84s, uh, unguided, dumb bombs, the whole suppression effort was focused on the timing of the strikers going in and coming out. <clears throat> so we had a we had a, a big a division of maybe a couple of divisions of Tomcats out in front, and they were doing this kind of sweep around. But they had been briefed, and rightly so, don't get sucked into the into the SAM envelopes, the SAM Bush kind of tactic. So stay outside. They're kind of doing a stop sign sort of thing around the MES, the missile engagement zone. And so it, as this thing unfolds, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. The, these are the tactics that are associated with this particular strike. And they were they were representative of you know, kind of our state of tactical thought in 1990, 91. Um, so that was what, so I launched as a spare, my roommate and my Naval Academy classmate, Steve Minnis, he had a, a mission, uh, mission computer failure. <clears throat> Air, airplane's not going to drop bombs, MC1 fail. So he, I launched in his place. There were six original strikers that were scheduled. And um, led by uh, Bill McKee, who was our XO, call sign Maggot. Um, <laughs> Super Navy call sign. Yeah. Uh, Dash 2, Nick Mongello, Mongo. Um, three had been uh, Menace. I fill in originally as Dash 3. Dash 4 is a guy named Doug Cooper, Coop. Dash five is Chuck Osborne, bouncer, and dash six is um, Cajun Trahan. Uh, uh, these last two guys are from VF-83. So six airplanes, and we had mechanical scan. I mean, these are brand new Lot 10 uh, FA-18Cs. They're the first lot of the Charlie model. So we've been flying A's back in, the, in Libya. Now we're flying Charlie's. Mechanically scanned array radars, APG-65. And so you do these contracts, you know, you look low, I look high. So it went high, low, low, high, low, high. Well, so I took a low look because that was what dash three was. This takes more time to explain, than, but I'll, I'll do it anyway because it to the people who are interested in this, I'll, perhaps there's some value. Um, so Menace fell out. He was dash three. I plug in. That's where I'm going. That's the target I'm going to go after. Um, Doug Cooper, Dash 4, we had been flying a double double uh, bubble configuration, symmetrical. And so that meant, okay, we're going single center line. The configuration of all the go-birds was sin- single center line, two sparrows on the cheek stations, two sidewinders on the wingtip stations, and then three Mark 84s, and then on the fourth pylon was uh, an ALQ-167. Uh, it's a Bullwinkle pod that's designed to counter the SA-6. You guys are heavy. Mark 84s, 2,000-pound bombs. bombs. So that, that's that's a lot of weight you guys are so, carrying. Well, and so as the spare, they had run out of ALQ-167s. So they just slapped another Mark 84 on my jet. So I had four Mark 84s. It's about as manly a load as you can get. Uh, yeah. <laughs> two sparrows, two winders, and in my case, four Mark 84s. And I don't have 
the ALQ-167 is designed to counter the SA-6. Thanks, So I'm very well aware of all of the off-target flow, and I'm I'm jumping ahead. (laughs) When I come off-target, there's Mongo, and here's Maggot, and I'm in between. (laughs) You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to have to go through one of those guys, but I'm going to be in the middle of them since they've got the little uh, Klingon cloaking device. Right. (laughs) Anyway, so Doug Cooper can't get the gas out of his Cinelon drop tank. Ah, okay. He aborts. He goes back to the ship. So now, Maggot, Bill McKee, strike lead, he goes, okay, Mert, you're now my wingman in combat spread. Mongo, you're going to be my tack wingman. So our original plan had been basically an offset battle box, you know, mile and a half combat spread, mile and a half nose to tail, two, two, two. Now, It'll be three and two with the two VFA uh, 83 guys, Bouncer and, and Cajun. And we're just about to cross into Iraq when Trahan has a cabin pressurization failure. And he's frosting up his camp. I mean, he can't see out. So he aborts just as. So I've gone from dash three to sort of dash two, and now I'm going to dash four. It goes, okay, Mert, fall back and be Bouncer's wingman. So we are in now a two, two planes with this idea of, okay, we're all looking outside the jets. Um, but the you know, we're supposed to be basically a nose to tail between the two sections, about a mile and a half, mile, mile and a half, about mile and a half combat spread. Very, very flexible tactical formation. Well, Bouncer's got a pretty heavy left hand. <laughs> I'm, dash, so I'm dash four now, and I haven't changed any of my – I'm still going after the the same target, and I have the same contract. My ability to flex, to go, should I be looking high or low now? I mean, I'd locked into to Steve Menace's contract you know, a long time ago. So as it turns out, there's only one guy that's looking high, Bill McKee, and I don't know why he didn't see these guys. But anyway, everybody else is looking low, and I don't mind looking low because I figured that if there was anything that was going to come up, it would be coming from low to high, not not co-altitude. Right. So on the first day of the war, um, also, they used a broadcast control. So they had a bullseye called Manny. It was H3 Northwest. It was about 15 miles or so northwest of H3. Um, I had that in my system, but at this point, I can't even change the waypoint when I'm hearing bandits, Manny, 185, 25, southbound. Um, it's easy to think about now, but at the time, like, what? what? H3, H3 Northwest. Okay, I'm going to the target, H3. Did, did you at that time, so those listening, bullseye, geographical reference point, and you could have a couple of it sounds like this time there's just one, but throw throw a bullseye, throw a, a compass on top of a point and then go bearing and range from that. And it's a way for everyone to get the air picture. Hey, bearing, you know, zero nine zero fifty, you know, it's east fifty miles from that reference point. But when you're saying that too, I can envision like I'm focused on getting ready to drop my bombs, hit my target. You know, nowadays, Viper, you can have your steer point called up. Imagine the horn same. 
but I know previous iterations for advanced, like you would have to punch in your bullseye. You you have to switch between the two, or you just have to have a really great map in your mind of where you are in space in relation to that point, which can be very. In the first day of the war, you're you're pretty much on brainstem power. I mean, whatever. Yeah, right. Not doing any great reflective (laughs) thinking. Um, So I hear, and then there's actually a merge of these bandits and there's another change that's taken place over year over the years a bogey was an unknown a bandit is a known that was the uh, the equivalent of a declaration of hostile so okay yeah i was gonna ask that as well because bandit you're still doing some work today to upgrade to shoot yeah that so a bandit is today's version of hostile and our roe was you gotta have you can't take any un correlated BVR shots. Fair enough. The Eagles had the two capabilities to be able to take um, take a, a BVR shot, but we didn't. And so, but if you correlate a call, you know, an airplane that's been declared a hostile or bandit, and you can correlate that from the E2, then that's a righteous shot. So we're in, we're going in, as we're pro- we're about 35, 40 miles south of the target, we're at altitude. We're at uh, 29, 30,000 feet, going as fast as you can go in a Hornet without using the blower. Um, so we're at point nine. And in fact, I'm having a stroke blower every now and then because I can't stay up right. with it. <laughs> I'm carrying an extra 2,000-pound bomb. Um, but anyway, so Bouncer, actually, he's instead of being like this, we're more like that. So. We, okay. he's he's got a heavy left hand i'm flying off of him and so now we're basically a wall if you will mongo maggot me bouncer heading north um at first in fact i see some contrails coming over our shoulders and it's like oh contra oh those are harm that's good. You know, these things are now evidence that our plan is working and these anti-radiation missiles are coming over. Um, there are, it's a chaotic, it, oh, here's another thing. They changed the crypto the night before the war. But, you know, because you've got to, you can't be using the same crypto you were using that worked. Right. And so, right. No, nothing, nothing works in terms of, you know, data link, Crypto. So we're all open voice uh, because that's the only way you can. We didn't have have quick back then, by the way. Um, okay. But we're open voice um, talking. And so, but you did. You would have had if the crypto had worked. You'd have secure comms airfly. Because I, I digress. The I, we really had a challenge. This is the this is the simple stuff. It's like uh, NASA going between the standard and metric system and packed up. Yeah. Uh, satellite into into Mars. We showed up. We were having a really difficult thing working for some customers because we couldn't talk to them via sat with crypto. And come to find out, it was one guy back home when he would download the file to then upload it to the appropriate uh, SKL loader. He just renamed it one day off by accident. And so it took about three weeks to figure out. It was just one simple thing that was a file yeah. name. And we, we were loading up the crypto for the wrong day, but you couldn't do anything. I mean, it, it was, it was yeah. for that, for that target, for that mission. To back up just a little bit, 
suddenly when we're actually going into combat, oh, we got it. We're carrying weapons now. You know, we hadn't been carrying sidearms. And so <laughs> we were carrying snub nose 38s. They were more dangerous to us than they were to the bad guys. <laughs> Right. Well, the whole idea is if you can't, it, you can manipulate a, a snub nose 38 with one hand. If you were disabled, you know, you've got to have another hand to either, you know, anyway. So that, <laughs> and then they come up also, oh, you guys are going into war, into combat. So we've got new radios. So, this is perfect. yeah. So we had the, what was it? The PRC, um, what was the one that we had had forever and ever? I'm, I'm dropping the. Was it Prick 90? Yeah, PRC 90. Okay. That was the one that I knew how to use. I had been flying with it all my life. Now it's like, oh, we got PRC 112s and they're big. <laughs> they didn't fit into our. So I carried both. I carried a PRC 90 in my G suit pocket because I knew how to work that. And then it was like, oh, by the way, here, take these PRC 112s. And, you know, <laughs> anyways, that kind of. Last minute stuff. There's just an enormous amount of stuff that um, we since then have become certainly much, much better. But the first day of the war, the first launch, the first that there, there was a lot of unknowns uh, out there. So Jeez. anyway, back we're 35 miles south of the target. Bandits, many. Uh, there's a merge of the bandits, a high low merge that they don't see each other with some of the, the decoy droppers, the tall birds. They're over here at our right uh, 10 o'clock and I go, Oh, it sucks to be them, man. I'm okay. I'm on my way here. Those guys are dropping tall. There was no shots. There was no visual, but there was a merge. I think a high low merge. And then we're not, the strikers are not responding. And in my mind, it's all off to the left a bit. And I'm looking low. I just do one more. Okay. Just outside the, the mez about to go into it. <clears throat> I went air to ground for just a minute and the evidence of a, of 120 knot jet stream, boom. So the air to ground symbology in the Hornet is ground stabilized. So the velocity vector is it's over there on the right side, flashing complete and total. I was like, so the one neuron that's firing here from the brainstem power is like huh, big jet stream up here. When I reach the point where I'm going to roll in, I'm actually going to go wet. I'm coming from the South heading north. I'm going to go off in here to the west, and then I'll reverse back and make the run from west to east with the, the jet stream on my tail. And that way, number one, it'll steepen my dive. It'll speed my ground path, uh, my ground speed across the target, and so forth. So there was some functional thought, but it was just like, ah. And exactly at that time, when I just went air to ground just to check that my bombs were unlocked and the racks were ready to go out. The, the E2 comes up and he goes, 400, that's Bill McKee, 400, that bandit's on your nose at 15. 400, that, that bandit's on your nose at 15. <laughs> Hello, I'm awake. I'm awake. I'm awake. <laughs> so I'm jolted and boom, I, I went right into a sidewinder, quick, uh, a quick lock um, set, 20 mile, medium PRF, boom. and. By the time I get a lock, he's at nine miles, and he's at 1.3, right on my nose. 400 radar contact on my nose, mark at 28,000. 200 bogey on the nose, 28,000, seven miles. Pointed right at me. So from the band, that bandage on your nose at 15 to going through a quick lock, he's at nine miles. And 
that bandit, the big B word, went from here to here. <laughs> um, I'm going to kill a guy. Right. And so, did you got a you got a sign winder lock? Uh, so you're on the nose. Well, just wait because we have brand. In today's sidewinders, you could have done a, you could have taken that shot probably. But what do you train to inside ten miles? Always heat. If I'd been sane and right, our our sidewinders, the the aim nine mics didn't have that that capability then. If I'd been sane and rational, we didn't have amrams either. We're carrying sparrows. If I'd been sane and rational, and I should have just selected a sparrow and taken a nine mile fox one, should have. But I'm sitting here now. I'm caging the sidewinder seeker to look down the radar line of sight. There's a little cage, cage uncage button there on the the right throttle, and I'm cage it, cage it. You know, goes off. Cage it again. Goes off. Cage it one more time. Tone. Shoot light. Take the shot. Good idea. Coming down my nose. Both side, Mike. I'm just at one. Good sniff, big 21. In the meantime, Bill McKee, who thinks that Bouncer and I are a year, a mile and a half or so behind him, but we're actually a beam him, he's going 306 is standby for VID. So McKee missed the bandit call and he says we've got bogeys on the nose um and when he's talking about standby for vid i've already squeezed the trigger once um i did get a a good uh nctr i mean it that was that was not what i based my shot on it was the bandit call from the e2 that i correlated but so i didn't call my shot that's the one there's one other the I'd fired two or three sidewinders in my previous years of flying, and they were all golf hotels. You know, they leave a big plume of white smoke, and to go to the drone, and so, and even our simulator was mechanized at the time, so that when you fired a sidewinder, there was a plume of smoke that goes towards the target. So that's what I'm looking for. Well, as it turns out, the brand spanking new Aim Nine mics, they're smokeless motors. And so this thing comes off the rail, just like every other sidewinder I've ever fired, like a train going, you know, you'll whoosh. And then it just disappeared. And I glanced at the range. It was about a six and a half mile face shot. It turns out he's at 29. I'm at one at 30. He's at 1.3. I'm at 0.9. It's a, it's a righteous shot in terms of a, um, it worked. It was a valid shot. But I have this huge wave of... Uh, the first day of hunting season i i I may have had a little buck fever here this doesn't i I glanced at the range and it did seem excessive it was like uh it turns out it worked fine and it was a valid shot but i've now kissed off the sidewinder in my own mind of just going and mckee's over here standing you know stand by for vid and i'm about to so i select sparrow at that point and i took a 4.2 mile sparrow shot good sniff big 21 It did it in reverse in terms of what you would expect. I employed the heat-seeking missile at six and a half miles and then followed it up with a sparrow. The sparrow was sort of like a Saturn V. I mean, it was like... 
was some time compression. I felt like I could have looked over there and seen the serial number on the on the missile. I mean, it it just it seemed like it was and just go as, already. As I as I squeeze the side or the the sparrow, take the sparrow shot, the sidewinder hits him, and then the sparrow hits him, and you always <laughs> think, okay, the, an airplane that's been hit by a missile or two is disintegrating. I mean, it's but. He's at 1.3. I'm at 0.9. You have what? Mach 2.5 or something over launch speed. The nose to nose closure between the missile and the target is somewhere over Mach 4. And so the TDD, the target detecting device, is going, hey, warhead, blow up. And it, all of the frags, everything, the Sidewinder did the job. He's on fire. He's going down. The Sparrow added to the job. Um, anyway, he's still a MiG 20. He comes right under. Uh, right under my left wing and I kind of rock up on my left wing. I watch him go underneath about a thousand foot pass canopy still on the jet. Uh, he's on fire mid fuselage aft, but there's, there's a MiG 21, a little spade looking wings. Um, and another set of things unconsciously, I'd already saw my, I'm back at idle. It's like, huh, what am I to sell her? Oh, because I was, I was doing a little bit of, you know, management, you know, cool management here, hopefully. Okay. And then, so while that's going on, Mongo gets a lock on the wingman. And as it turns out, I think Bouncer got a lock on the guy that I shot and maybe McKee, I don't know. Um, But I'm the only guy who chose to fire. And then Mongo, as the wingman gets, he gets a lock on the wingman. The two MIGs were in a pair patrol uh, left echelon from the way we looked at it. So the lead was here and the uh, and the wingman was to the left. And so Mongo kind of, he val- <laughs> when he hears all of this stuff going on, he was a nugget. He joined us in August just before we deployed or late July. So he's a brand new guy. He's six months in the fleet and he's he gets a MIG kill. He had the, when he went Air to air, because he had also checked. We'd done a okay. Let's check to make sure our bombs are are unlocked and the racks are working and all that. He'd gone air to ground. Boom. He goes and he goes to the the Sparrow set, which is the forty mile, you know, interleafed, uh, wide range. I mean, it was not a quick set, but he gets a lock on the wingman. And whereas I kind of validated the the long range uh, sidewinder shot. He validates the min range sparrow shot. He takes a one point or two point one mile uh, or two point two mile sparrow shot, and his his the guy he's locked on this MiG twenty one is more of a left to right track cost crossing angle, and so Mongo has to kind of overbank to center the dot. He fires, and then this thing, you know, Mongo said it pulled so much lead he thought he'd gone stupid, but it's the proportional. You know, and so this thing kind of Navigation. rendezvous on the on the MIG, and boosh. so Mongo's all fired up. My missile hit my guy a few seconds ahead of Mongo's, but Mongo goes splash one, and then Bouncer on the right side of the formation very calmly goes splash two, which makes me also think that perhaps that first explosion I saw on my MIG was Bouncer's shot. I didn't. I, we didn't. This was all happening really fast. From the that bandage on your nose at fifteen until. Missiles are impacting MIGs is something like about 35 seconds or so. Um, happened really fast. And, 
when you say it happened really fast, and again, for those listening, I get, yeah, I'm going to do Georgia math here, but let's round, I'll round up. Say you're doing Mach one, but you're doing 0.9. They're doing 1.3. You got about 23 miles a, a minute of closure. So it's ticking down. And then obviously it's a pop-up threat, more or less. I mean, this, the adrenaline's got to be flowing. It's, it's happening quick and trying to sure. get the identification. Really. You know, to Just shoot, really trying it's, to it's, stay ahead of the jet, you know, and, and you know, if you get past them, you're going to have to just, I mean, you can't let them get past you without, you know, without aborting your mission and, you know, dealing with them because so boom. So there are two MiG-21 fireballs that go down either side of Bill McKee's airplane <laughs> or just underneath. Um, so, okay, we clear that merge. I actually wind up passing through the little puff of black smoke from the Sparrow impact. Um, interestingly, I mean, I just, as you review the HUD tape. So we get a lock on another group now. We're, we're 25 miles south of the target. And these guys initially are west of the target, nose on at 23,000 feet at point four. And who are those guys? What are they doing? I, there's no. And so McKee, you know, says, hey, we've got bogeys west of the target. E2 doesn't help us. They don't tell us, you know, they don't see them. And the funny thing, the crazy thing is these guys are initially pointed at us. And then they do this slow turn to the northeast. And and we're coming, you know, we're ramping down now. We were coming in in the 30s. Now we're going to be ramping down and, you know, we'll release our, our ordinance, you know, in the low teens, high tens, maybe. Um, but as we're ramping down, you know, we're, we're kind of accelerating. And this guy that I've got a lock on, um, I've got a no escape sparrow shot. I mean, seven miles, six miles, five miles. He's He's a dead man. But I don't know who it is. And it's not the day to do a, I mean, I'm, I'm hauling, he's at point four and I'm at point nine plus, And I've got four Mark 84s on the jet. And <laughs> if I knew who he was, I could kill him easily, but I didn't know who he was. Uh, as it turns out, this is after the fact and I'll jump ahead. You know, I, I get the Intel guys when I get back to the ship, say, Hey, congratulations on your MiG-29 kill. I said, uh, no, I, <laughs> I, it was a MiG-21, the guy that I shot and said, oh, no, there was slot back activity everywhere up there. And there were MiG-29s over the target when you were there. So from the lack of just one bit of information, the E-2 didn't see him and we couldn't. And these guys have gone tail on to us by now. Nobody's ever been able to explain to me what MiG-29s were doing over H-3 at 0.4 at 23,000 feet. My, I have two theories and they're they're my theories. One is either those guys had already been airborne and they were out of gas and they're just hanging out waiting for this thing to be over and they're just saving gas. Or they just launched and the Iraqi plane captain forgot to pull the gear pins and they're stiff-legged <laughs> up there. You know, point four. It, this is – so initially when I see this and this guy's sort of turning away, I mean, of course, in – in fighter tactics, that's that's like a dog rolling over on its, you know, bite my throat. I'm you know, kill me, and so 
one thought is, you know, in the Iran-Iraq war, there were some fairly sophisticated bait and switch drag kind of tactics that were used by the the Iraqis against the Iranians where they'd have somebody do something stupid. The Iranian F-4s would commit and then they'd have a flogger do a low to high or, you know, something like So that's kind of what's in my mind. If So when I get a lock on this guy and he's turning, he's no threat to me. I just did a series of kind of deep six checks for about the next minute or, you know, 45 seconds or something. So and then I come back, okay, no scrape, sparrow shot, seven miles, six miles, five miles. And it's like, there's H3. <laughs> I'm going to have to go past the rolling point to chase this guy down to see who he is. He's not a threat to me. Came here to drop bombs. I've tortured myself many times. I'd find myself running and I'd get running and faster and faster because it's like, oh, for the want of just, you know, I could have gone in there and gunned him. It's like, no, I, not if you make the smallest mistake, you're going to overshoot or anything like that. And I couldn't kill it. I mean, if, if I wanted to kill him, I could have, but I had a VID him. Anyway, I break lock. The old neuron that's firing. Okay, I go west into the jet stream and then I reverse back around and, and made a the sweetest dive bombing run I could have ever made. I, if I had another 10 years to try to do a better one, I couldn't. It was, it was just in the zone. My target, Steve Minnis's target, had been this commanding control bunker that was sand colored. There was no, it's midday, no shadows, no relief. I know where it is on the, on the target, on the, but I can't see it. It's, it's, it's just blended in. It's like, I'm not going to just drop on a location. Secondary targets, this big hangar. I know exactly what that is. Uh, you know, we briefed, okay, we're not in peacetime anymore. When you come off target, don't sit there and wait for your bomb to hit. And so I rolled in, dropped, and built into my off-target jinx peaks back at the target. So jink, jink, you know, jink, peak. And so the first time, look down and I see if it was four Mark 84s. Just like, oh, that looks so good. But while I'm focused on infinity there, there's this popcorn. I was probably at, I don't know, 12 or 14,000 feet when I pickled. I mean, I, it was an auto toss. I didn't fly to a solution. So I'm above 10,000 feet easily. But <clears throat> scattered all over the place are these popcorn puffs of, of AAA. And did you ever play that little game, um, pick up sticks, you know, where you drop these little straws and then you're supposed to take them out? Well, SA-7s and SA-9, these little corkscrew contrails are just everywhere. Just they're, they're just ballistic. They're just firing them. And I'm above it. I'm just like, not a good day to be low, A, and I need to resume my jinking game plan. So, you know, jink, jink, you know, chaff flares, jink, jink peak <laughs> bombs walked into that hangar is like yes you know regardless of whatever else happens you know we put the bombs on the target and then there's there's mongo <laughs> and there's maggot you know i i snuggle up in between those guys and then we hustle out of town so i'm and in fact we go supersonic out of out of Iraq. i mean and there's there's the two two pillars of smoke about 30 miles south of the target of the two dead MiG-21s. I mean, there's a little reminder of what we had just, just had. 
So it sounds more dramatic than it really is, but I had a low fuel. I had 1,700 pounds when I got to the tanker. We had a low fuel light in the Hornet at 2,000. But there was a divert field just inside Saudi called Arar. And I could have easily – so if I want to impress somebody, you know, it's like, oh, you know, I had a low fuel light when I got to the tanker. But there was a divert right underneath. So I wasn't all that spooled about it. And, in fact, um, so we were checking each other over as we join on the tanker and make sure nobody has any holes in their in their jet. And um, Mongo's missing a sparrow, okay? Osborne and McKee got all their ordnance. Maybe that sidewinder worked. Maybe that. So all the way, I, I get, as I plug into the, the KC-135, the, the boom operator's down there doing the jive. You know, he's giving me, you know, looking at the missing missiles on my on my wingtip and on the cheek station. He's giving me these big thumbs up and big grins. And so all the way back to the ship, probably almost two hour hop back, it's like, you got a mid kill. That's the little angel and then the little devil goes, you're going to bolter. Uh, so it's, you got a mid kill. You're going to bolter if you think that. And I, there was still enough of a shred of doubt. I couldn't necessarily, you know, be absolutely certain until I looked at the tape. Uh, but I got aboard. I had an OK3 wire. I flew a good pass. And uh, so I get out, go down to the Intel, the carrier Intel, Civic, you know, watching the tape. <clears throat> and in fact, you can see. When you carefully look at it, there's a little smoke trail. The AM9 Mike did leave a little one, but it wasn't a big white plume. And so the CO of Saratoga was a guy named Joe Mobley. He'd been an A6BN in Vietnam, and he was a POW for six or seven years. So delightful man, wonderful guy. And he's down in Civic, and he's going, Mark, you, you put a sparrow into a burning MiG. I, go, I just wanted to be sure, Skipper. I want, I want yeah, to make sure. Yeah. So we're hooting and hollering. So Mongo and I, I pull Mongo out into the passageway and I say, listen, I'm going to hold you accountable and you hold me accountable. If we ever, ever talk about how we had this thing suitcased, I mean, we were hanging on by our fingertips. You know, you hold me accountable. I'll hold you accountable. We were pretty fucked up, and we were, and we're fortunate, and it worked out okay. But don't ever, I don't let me, don't let you. Uh, we need to be, you know, there needs to be a dose of humility here. And it, he's not, he's a marvelous, wonderful guy, and we agreed that okay, let's not let our heads swell too much out of this thing because we were we were pretty screwed up. Uh, we did it. But it wasn't pretty, right? Um, you know, we we train over and over again. You run through these scenarios and you practice, and you want to be pristine, right, for the time when it actually happens. You know, you're ready because undoubtedly, uh, you know, again, the enemy always gets vote. There's gonna be some weird stuff that happens. The I think I've talked about on the podcast. We when I showed up uh, to the gamblers in in the vault, there's a DVR tape from ninety eight ninety nine MIG shoot down, the last one until. Uh, Syria just recently in the last couple of years, but dog Geezy had the shoot down. He came back. We 
we secured the O club and had all three fighter squadrons in there one day and he walked the tapes and he's like, this is the first time I've seen him, you know, since he was active flying in the squadron, but it was interesting to hear him talk about it. So candidly, because he, he was talking about all the mistakes, you know, trundling inside Mar, the minibort range, you know, his fangs are through the floor. Again, it's not, it's, you know, the, when you went out and you did it on a training day, you probably would have like in his case, like I would have never gotten to that position. Right. But, it just, the adrenaline's yeah. pumping, things are happening. Uh, yeah, it's it's not pristine, but you get yeah. the job done. Yeah. So anyway, they're starting to set up Civic, the Intel Center, for this evening strike. It's like holy smokes! I, I'm a go bird on this thing. I mean, I'm the harm shooter element lead for the A6 guys. Are going to go to H3. In fact, they're going to go low, um, and I could never understand that um, because. If it's the second day of the war, you really shouldn't be going low. It's baked pizza crust terrain. But um, anyway, that was they, – they, that's what they did. So we were setting up. I went grabbed a, a quick meal and uh, came back up. And uh, so the XO of the A6 squadron was the strike lead on this thing, and they were going to do this little multi-axis A6 attack into – H3 and I was shooting harms and we were going to do jamming similar, but they're low. And the XO of a, uh, VA 35, I think it was, he's there and he said, okay, we've got our offset aim points. We're doing this, we're doing that. And uh, we're going to go after this big white hanger here. And I said, Hey, XO, <clears throat> I put four Mark 84s on that this afternoon. Uh, and he goes, ah, that's okay. We've got our offset aim points and we're not, you know, not, not going to be deterred by the fact that it's been blown up. Um, but their attack did not go well. Um, as it turns out, they, the two lead a sixes, um, I was shooting harm, um, on the timeline. We're kind of spread out like spokes on a wheel shooting harm on a timeline to make sure that, but it was all triple a and it was just nasty down there. And so the two lead a sixes actually aborted the two follow A6s didn't know that the leads had aborted and they went on to the target. One was shot down in the target area. So this guy, Jeff Zahn, uh, he was ugly before he was shot down. He was the guy whose, whose face was on the cover of time magazine and he was all beat up. Um, but his pilot, Bob Wetzel, uh, he broke, I think he broke his arms in the ejection, but they were both became POWs. Um, and then the other airplane was shot up badly and they turned around and limped into a RAR and a 37 millimeter shell shredded the bombardier navigators, uh, ladder. There were, there were bullets through the canopy. Um, it was, and they were very fortunate. The airplane was a strike damage. They, it wasn't, you know, it never flew again, but so they limped into a RAR and, and, and landed. Um, but anyway, so two, Varsity hops on January 17th. One is a spare and then the other. And of course, we'd lost an airplane and a pilot the night before. So anyway, it was it was an eventful period of time. And the next day, the, the there was a group of, of journalists that came out to Saratoga and they wanted to talk to us. And I had had no training. I'd had no preparation. 
it just seemed to me as just a good way to get yourself into trouble. I, I don't want to talk to a reporter right now. And Mongo and I agreed, and we talked to our skipper, and we talked to DCAG, and we talked. They're like, thanks, but no thanks. And the big XO of the ship, um, he's the grown-up in the crowd. He goes, hey, listen, what? <laughs> okay, we've lost three airplanes, essentially. We've lost two air crew. Don't know what happened to Spiker. We didn't know the status of the A6 guys that were shot down. And the other airplane had, had limped into Aurora. Um, and you guys got MIGILs. I mean, there's some, there's legitimate, and, the, and you guys are the good news of this whole thing. So it, I, I can't order you to, but I really want you to. And you can set the tone. And you don't have to give names. You don't have to let cameras. or So like, okay, okay. So... Um, so the very first question, so Christiana Amapur and about 15 other reporters are on Saratoga. Mongo and take, you know, we've taken our name tags off and we use call signs. So I'm, I'm Mert. <laughs> Here's, and so what's that stand for? Well, maximum rated thrust. Does that have a sexual connotation? <laughs> I could only wish that it did. No, it's a plain story. Um, but anyway, our first question. What's it feel like to kill another man? And I said, well, Jeez. I didn't have any problem sleeping last night. Um, I'd had, you know, about four hours of sleep. Um, well, how do you feel about the loss of your squadron mate? It, all, all of these are, how do you feel? How do you feel? How do you feel? I said, well, first of all, I, I haven't given up on him. As far as I'm concerned, you know, he had to jump out of his airplane. His radio's not working and he's... He's pissed off picking sand fleas out of his shorts, but we're going to get him back. Um, <clears throat> but so anyway, Mongo and I, we do a quick, quick thing and then um, we get out of there. So the next day, I saw Amapur. She's she's got kind of an, an earthy attract. I mean, she's an attractive woman um, and she felt free to ask a question like, does maximum rated thrust have a sexual connotation? Uh, but anyway, she they they honored our desire to not have our names released. Uh, but as she's coming down the passageway, I see her and I take my name tag off and she goes, oh, I saw the jet with your name on it up there, Mert. It's like, yeah, Mongo and I are so such rockets. Really <laughs> I, I just didn't want um, I didn't want people calling Priscilla or just, you know, I just didn't know what I didn't know, but I wasn't eager to have my name yep. out there in the in the public venue. But it was a it was a pretty it's a pretty hectic uh, couple of days. I can't even imagine. You know, down at the museum, I did see the two flight schedules, or it was actually several flight schedules that you you had donated at the museum. And we were talking about this before. To me, it's a weird set of emotions because I was looking at the flight schedule that has your name, Mongo, and Scott Spiker on there with your signature for the release and that, you know, that schedule, it looks like any, um, any other fighter squadron schedule. It looks like a thousand schedules right. that I've stared at over the years. And the, the weird, uh, I don't even know how to actually encapsulate this in you know, a sense, but it's, you know, you can empathize and put yourself in that situation. And that's the only schedule that Scott Spiker showed up for on that campaign. Yeah. You know, when you start doing, I, I draw parallels to, you know, pyro. I mean, there's a schedule out there that was the last time pyro was on, on a fly schedule that looked exactly yeah. the same. Um, so it, yeah, obviously it's a, it's a dangerous business. And for, uh, Scott Spiker, I, 
posthumously promoted to captain. Yeah, the whole um, the whole situation with Spike's um, status was. I I thought it was horribly handled in retrospect. So he was declared killed in action, body not recovered in 1991. And in fact, the first um, big press conference that was held with the opening campaign or the opening strike of of Desert Storm, um, Chairman Powell and SecDef Cheney are answering questions. And, you know, they said, yeah, let's see. you know, the Hornet off Saratoga. Yeah, the Hornet off Saratoga. Yeah, he's dead. Uh, you know, there was something to that effect of, well, he's gone. And he's got, those guys have got all of the resources of the Department of Defense at their uh, disposal. I think that that comment was made based on the debrief of the guys coming back saying the explosion looked unsurvivable. Well, what explosion at night looks survivable? I mean, um, right. so. It was he went down not far from um well he was in Anbar. He was not that far from Fallujah. And um so then okay, so he's killed in action, body not recovered. What we should have done, and I later lived in a you know world as the deputy at CENCOM, Schwarzkopf should you know, when we had our forces over there in strength, we should have said we're gonna account for every single person to include Scott Spiker. We're going to find the jet, and we're going to we're going to account for it. But that didn't happen. And then later, there are now so in the mid nineties, there was some uh, Emirati prince that was falconing in Iraq, and he stumbles across the wreckage of a Hornet, and he takes the a serial number off of a piece of of the wreckage and takes it back to the American embassy and goes, Hey, took some pictures. I think, Hey, I found this it's here. Um, and so then it was like, well, maybe he got out. And can you imagine how bad it would be if, Oh yeah, the Hornet pilot that was off of Saratoga is dead. But if he wasn't, Saddam doesn't have to account for him. And so right. anyway, his status went from, KIA body not recovered to MIA. And then there were some more intel indications that maybe he was alive. And then, so at the very end of the Clinton administration, he was, his status was changed again to POW. And, and then it went back to MIA because even after we took over Iraq, um, you know, they were looking for him, didn't find him. It was finally in 2009, um, <clears throat> where his remains were found. There was a team that went in under the Red Cross back in the mid-90s who they found a flight suit. They brought the, they brought all the stuff. These guys were from China Lake, uh, but they were under the, under the Red Cross banner, if you will. They found the wreckage, the radar, the nose of the airplane had been excavated, presumably by the Russians uh, or somebody, I don't know. Yeah. Still had some right. harm. Our motors. I mean, the airplane airplane landed in some sort of a falling leaf or a, a slow rate spin or something. It was pretty much a contained impact point. But there was a flight suit, and if you had been lying on your face and somebody cut a flight suit off of you, is the way it sort of looked. I mean, it was intact in the front, but it was all tattered, and it looked like it had been out in the desert for 
you know, four years or something. It had, I went home, I actually got my VFA 81 Sunliner memorabilia and it, it, the, the, um, the Velcro configuration of the flight suit was accurate. It was the right size for Spike. So I think it was his flight suit, which, and then they found also that the, the canopy was a couple of kilometers away from the wreckage, which is also indication that he ejected. And so, um, anyway, so that's how he went from Lieutenant commander to captain because suddenly, okay, maybe he's not dead. And then they, when somebody's still missing in action, then you still continue to have promotions. And so uh, it was, it was hard. It, it just didn't, it's a sad tale and somebody needs to write a really good book about it because it, there are so many things that could have and should have been done, should have been done and handled better. You know, again, not there. I don't have understanding of all the workings and you're, you're managing a lot of variables and obviously it's war and it's chaotic. I do, you know, we probably have learned a few things over the years and if the environment allows for it, you do what you can. I remember in Afghanistan, 2012, a Humvee column got hit and they thought there were one missing American. I mean, it was all stop in the AOR and every asset that was available flowed to that spot to, to go and find. Turns out that individual had perished in the, in the wreckage and they just didn't notice it. But again, it was everything, everything came to a screeching yeah. halt to go try and recover that American. Um, so yeah, I, I can't imagine. And then as you mentioned, 2009, the repatriation. So again, just envision, you know, that's 20, almost 20 years of unknown for his family, which I can't imagine yeah. going through. So not an easy, easy career to be involved. Well, in it's, um, I always felt a little guilty. I, his wife, Joanne, our, our children, two of our children went to the little, uh, Episcopal day school where Spike's kids went. And so Priscilla, my wife and Joanne were interacting with each other at Grace Episcopal day school that Thursday after, as it turns out, and, and Priscilla said, Oh no, they said it was a two seat. We know they're not flying two seat Hornets off of Saratoga. And, and Joanne goes, no, it's a single seat Hornet. Um, so, but she hadn't been notified. And, and I mean, there was this great, you know, Priscilla went through this, all of the wives of any Hornet pilot on Saratoga, you know, it was like, okay, Saratoga's lost a Hornet and the pilot's dead. It was the way it came out in this press conference. And then, so they set up this 1-800 number. Uh, my sister called it and my father-in-law called it and they both independently said, okay, my brother, my son-in-law is a Hornet pilot on Saratoga. What squadron? Uh, no. Yeah. What squadron? Uh, VFA 81. What's his name? You know, Fox. He said, it's not him. But <clears throat> so there was, you know, just a lot of really, this was pre social media, pre, um, you know, quick, quick communications the way that we're used to it today. No internet or any of that stuff. Yeah, it's a different problem set now. The It's a race to get to notify the family before they find yeah. out in the news. And we were talking, um, you know, again, beforehand with Pyro, I remember him and Bear coming back to high key over the base. And you know, I was walking back from the bathroom. It was two or three o'clock in the morning. I was like, oh, someone's got a problem. I go 
you know, go to my room, I'm FaceTiming my wife. I hear the uh, recall of the commander's action team, which, you know, they do on the PA system. Like, well, in my mind, I'm like, someone probably just had a heart attack and they're recalling all the critical, you know, people on base to, to handle this. Um, and then internet shuts off, you know, it was Nordo for about three days, you know, in, in, in an effort, right. To contain it as fast as humanly possible to be able yeah. to notify his spouse, uh, which today just not the case. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a hard to, yeah, there's, there's no easy solution and you're dealing with that. So, um, yeah, we kind of diverted there. I appreciate you sharing that time period of your life. I know, you know, for just that's one day, essentially a 24 hour window, more or less that we just dove into, but very impactful. And even to this day, like that's it, forever. I would imagine you'd probably say change, change your life, right? A significant impact. Any, uh, anytime I talk about it, I'm willing to talk about it. I haven't had any, you know, bad dreams or anything. Uh, I have a very strong Christian faith. And if that man was a Christian, he was doing his job and I'm doing mine and we'll see each other someday. I, I didn't, um, I always felt, in fact, this was the answer I gave Amapur. You know, it's like, basically, if if he didn't want to be in that position, he should have taken off. I mean, you, you accept a certain amount of risk. He was doing his job and he would have gladly done it to me if he could have. So I, I've never, I, I've never had any um trauma or PTSD or nightmares or any of that stuff. I mean, it's just been, Hey, it's just business, man. We were, we were working as hard as we could to do the mission and they were doing everything they could to stop us. And. Well, and I know you mentioned it too. You've, you've thought about putting, um, Scott Spiker on the schedule, but I, not knowing him, I can imagine he's like any other fighter pilot. Like I would be pissed at you if you didn't yeah. put me on the schedule. Like that's where I, yeah. this is what I've trained to. This is what I've spent all my life doing training for. And it's now time to go to the Super Bowl, and you're putting me on the sidelines. That's the last place I want to be. I want to be out there I on didn't, the field. In the article that I wrote that I shared with you, I didn't go into all of the slam ER stuff. It was just too much complication. But that was the reason Spike hadn't been one of the go birds in any of the big four things that we were going because he was kind of being held as a he's got this special skill set he's the SME on the slam ER um but anyway and he you're, you're right he you know Mert come on man I've trained all my life to do this don't leave me on the sideline it's like you're absolutely right yeah don't you're icing the kicker there so uh I I, I can completely empathize with that we haven't touched on Iraqi freedom. We haven't touched on your presidential, you know, time or time at the White House, nor the later part of like your flag years, which I would like to talk about. But in respect for your time, I I want to have you back on the podcast sure, if you're willing you to do that. I think what I like to wrap up with is I like to ask my guest, you know, if you found, you know, 15, 16 year old Mert walking down the street, is there any advice you would give him? Tell him to do something different point outs, et cetera? Well, it, it all is a function of, do you really want to do something? And I wanted to fly. And I didn't have any aspirations beyond that, really, at the time. Uh, I, and then flying airplanes off of the ship, that's even better. And, you know, the very thing I love to do is it took me away from the family that I loved. I mean, you've got to find the right woman to to put up with this. Yeah. Uh, Priscilla and I um, just celebrated our um, 43rd wedding anniversary last month. Uh, she's a saint awesome. to put up with me. 
Um, but you know, the advice I would give somebody is if you've got that fire in your belly, follow your heart. I mean, just bite that apple and let the juice run down your chin, you know, just do everything that you can. I, I was, I didn't realize how I was kind of an anomaly, I suppose. I knew what I wanted to do when I was, you know, three or four years old. And there are pictures of me as a little guy wearing a mask and, you know, a helmet and bed and uh, little flight suits and aircraft carriers and, you know, all of the things that little boys. And I got to do it. And the other the thing that I, I joined because I love to fly and I never lost the passion for flying. The satisfaction of leading on the ground, leading in the air, of building a team, that's sustained. I mean, there's nothing better than being part of a really, really high-performing team. And when you get to now create the environment where people can thrive and grow, and you, so short of being a parent, this is the most satisfying part of my life has been watching young people grow up to be CEOs of squadrons and, and, uh, you know, I, the kids are running the store now. I'm, I'm old. Watch his name. I'm in the, I'm in the sidelines here. I'm in the stands cheering. Uh, but I would go back and do it all over again I, with, I'd be a little smarter, I think, but, um, it's, you know, it, it was my passion. I got to do it and I'm grateful for that. Well, sir, thank you again for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for sharing just a little bit about your experience. I have to have you back on. We'll talk about, I don't know if, if it's fair to say, part two, or the chapter okay. two of, well, of this saga. But uh, I'm, I'm I delighted. I hope I didn't go through uh, into too many rabbit holes here. No, this is, this is great. I really you appreciate bet. it. Thank you, sir. Again, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You're going to want to click the link down below to E3 Aviation. Jump on the list there so you get notified when we launch because you'll be able to see an in-depth breakdown of Mertz F-18 that's sitting down there at Pensacola Naval Air Station. With all that being said, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.